Hi, and welcome to Bread. Twice a year, we dedicate two services to the vision of bread and how we can support the work of the church with our resources. Jesus spoke more about money than anything else other than the kingdom of God. He knew how important an issue it is. Unfortunately, the church hasn't always done a great job reflecting his teaching and his practices when it comes to how Christians should treat our finances. In this series, we want to get back to a Jesus-centered appreciation of money so that we might be the open, generous people God calls us to be, using our resources for eternal good and building the kingdom of heaven right here and now in Los Angeles. This week, I want to talk about why we should give money to the church in particular. Just a quick recap, though, from last week. Jesus talks about money more than any other subject uh, other than the kingdom of God. And the reason for this is a very good reason, because he knows just how dominant money can be in our lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contrasts money with God. And in doing so, he is basically saying, you cannot serve both God and mammon, which is the Hebrew word for money, because when our lives are not in line with Jesus' view on money, then money becomes like a God. It's not a God, but it becomes like a God, and it can rule our thoughts and our emotions and our actions. Now, as I said last week, there are some very good reasons to not really be comfortable hearing about money in church. Unfortunately, the church has done a great job of talking really stupid things about money. So if you have grown up hearing stupid things about money in church, and then we talk about money in church, it's totally understandable and completely right to go, I don't want to hear about money. But the main reason we don't want to hear about money is not a good one. And the reason we don't really want to hear about money is because it actually cuts to the core of who we are. And we realize that actually there are parts of ourselves that we really don't want Jesus having anything to do with. And particularly, that's often our money. It exposes where we're actually at with Jesus, doesn't it? Just out of interest, and you can raise your hand if you're feeling brave, how many who heard last week's talk spent most of it thinking about what other people do with their money and how terrible they are with it. I know I did. I was, as I was preaching, I was going, this is really good stuff. This is great stuff for that person, for you, for you, and oh, I really hope this person's hearing it. This is the power of money. It actually speaks to us. That's not Jesus' voice. That is money's voice. Such is its scope. It stops you from hearing Jesus' voice, and instead you hear its voice helping you do some wonderful judgment of other people, and me too. My strong advice would be not to worry about how other people are using their money. Please hear this. They can worry about themselves. Don't we have enough trouble of our own? enough of our own problems to be dealing with. A Twitter rant about Elon Musk and how he chooses to use his money is probably not worth your time, not least because Twitter may well not be existent quite soon. And in all seriousness, and I mean this kindly, in my experience, those who are obsessed with other people's money that tend to be the ones who aren't aware that they've actually got quite a problem with money themselves. Nod along, it's about other people. <laughs> That's definitely other people. As the Bible makes clear, it's all God's anyway. So let him worry about how everyone uses it. And for us, let us, as Jesus teaches, do all we can to use the gifts that he has given us to make money, to save money, to invest it wisely, and to give it away. The defining principle of the New Testament is generosity. Generosity underpins Christmas. It underpins the ministry of Jesus who has come to serve, not to be served, who has come to bring good news, the age of God's favor for the whole of humankind. It underpins the cross and resurrection. Is there better, a better display of generosity than God giving himself up for the sake of us? It underpins the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers the church to be Jesus for the world. 
All of this comes about because God loves to give good gifts to his children because he is generous. And so money ultimately is an issue of our heart, not how much is in our wallets or in our bank balance. And generosity is the underlying Christian principle. Generosity plays by no rules. It doesn't um, follow any sort of ledger. It can't be accounted for. The widow's two pennies are more generous than the Pharisee's splashing of the cash. So don't worry about how much or little you have. Your heart is what Jesus is after. The key for all of this is to not hold money with clenched fists, however much or little we've got, but with open hands so that we can freely just disperse it as God leads. And then, actually, amazingly, we will be free, just as Jesus intends us to. So, giving away money is a good thing, and hopefully it goes without saying, but you shouldn't give all your money that you give away to the church. Find other things that you love and give to them. Be the first at the bar. Sometimes just pick up the check, the whole check. Do what you can to be generous. Not just with your money, but with your time and your efforts. Raoul was telling me that he um, spends some time every week with uh, someone called Buck, who is unhoused in the area, and he just goes and visits him and gets to know him and spends some time with him. That's generosity. Jesus loves that. Be like, be like Raoul and Jesus. <laughs> Don't wait until you've got lots of money to be generous. Do you know, in my experience, and for the most people that I've spoken to, actually the more money you have, the harder it is to be generous. I know it's counterintuitive, but it actually is because it then plays a bigger role in our lives. Do it now. I was very grateful to um, learn about giving money away when I was relatively poor. I didn't really have much money. Um, and I found it easier to give away money then than I do now, when I have relatively more. So do it early, put it in your heart and mind, so that when you are the multi-billionaire that no doubt you will be, you'll give it all away. So, this morning, specifically, that's the end of the recap, why give money to the church? Why should we and how should we do it? Uh, where's some Noah? Noah, hi. You're going to read the reading, aren't you? This is Noah. He can't stop smiling. He just smiles all the time. He's so nice. Uh, this is um, 1 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 30. Just as a body, though one, has many parts but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 
Now you are with the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Amen. Yes. Um, thank you, Noah. Um, before we get into the slightly torturous analogy that goes on and on and on and on and involves some Frankenstein-type imagery of a whole body being an ear, uh, let me give you a little bit of background. Corinth was a multicultural and affluent seaport. There were influences coming from all over the world. And as such, it was sort of this melting point of ideas and beliefs and people and experiences. Many people were fabulously rich there, and like in any other city, uh, there were people who were very poor. Um, as such, probably of all the cities that Paul writes to, Corinth is closest to what um, LA is like. Uh, you know, there's a huge amount of diversity of race, of experience, of belief, of practices, lots of money, uh, lots of different people. Now, some of the problems that Paul addresses in his letter in Corinth are these. The church has elevated the gift of tongues so that basically um, they think this is everything. Speaking tongues is everything and, um, and they sort of look down on people who don't speak in tongues that much. Uh, it's seen as sort of this spiritual enlightenment that lifts people into this ecstatic kind of angelic type place and their worship services would just be speaking in tongues the whole time. It means that everything else has been neglected and that they've got some strange theology about uh, the body, for instance. They don't think the body matters, so you can do whatever you like with the body. And they've neglected the poor, and they don't look after anyone. Uh, and it's all about, hey, we're having this ecstatic experience. And so for Paul, this homogeneity is a big no-no. So you've completely missed the point. Uh, so that's sort of what he's attacking in general. Now, of course, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with speaking in tongues. Uh, I've been judged by the Lord. I've lost the thing. There we go. That was because I was talking about tongues, obviously. Uh, that was a joke. Uh, there's nothing intrinsically wrong about tongues. As Paul says, he speaks in tongues more than any of them. Ha, 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 says Paul. I speak in tongues a lot, so get over it. And he wants them all to speak in tongues. Um, the problem comes, though, when everything else is sidelined. But don't worry. We're still going to bang on and on and on and on and on about tongues here. It's good for you. But we'll come back to all of that in a minute. For now, why give to the church? Firstly, because you are it, and it is you. It's who you are, and you are who it is. Verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. To be a Christian is to be part of the church, full stop. You can't get away from it as much as you and I might like it is who you now are. Paul's argument here is not, we're all diverse, so we need to work really hard towards unity. It's actually the other way around. He's saying, because you are a Christian, you are unified. Unity is who we are. We are all part of the church. But therefore, we're going to have to work really hard to make sure we don't lose our diversity. That's his argument. So you are the church, and the church is you. Now, I have lots of sympathy for those who have been hurt by the church. Uh, I'm married to one. <laughs> she never stops telling me about it uh, and leads the church. I have a lot of sympathy for those who've been hurt by the church. And by the way, if you want to do sort of one-upmanship on hurt by the church, talk to my wife. She will win. She will win. I, whatever story you have, hers are better. Okay? And she's leading a church. Isn't that strange? Because she's a mature Christian. Be like Raoul, and also be like Hannah, and be like Jesus. <laughs> but in all seriousness, abuse at the hands of the church, and particularly abuse at the hands of those who represent the church, it does have all the more devastating effects, I think, in that it associates pain 
with that which is actually the antidote to all pain. So it can be very confusing and difficult to navigate between what hurts and was never from God and what heals and is always from him. It's why we will continue to say at this church that you can be here on your own terms. Take your time and be and become safe with us here and with Jesus. Because church must always be a hospital because Jesus will always be the great physician. We saw some wonderful things during uh, the time on the weekend away, I think particularly of people having the courage to open themselves to some of the pain that they have received, particularly from the church, and seeing the Holy Spirit minister to it and heal it. It was very powerful. I don't know if you remember, but um, someone who was there, I don't think she's here today, um, but she gave testimony about having a vision during the night Uh, of um, the room in which we were in, and she's a nurse, and this um, man was walking around the room, and she asked the man, who are you? And she said, I'm a doctor of the heart. And she found that was odd, because as a nurse, you don't introduce yourself if you're a doctor as a doctor of the heart, but he said, I'm a doctor of the heart. And as he went around the room touching people, he healed their hearts, all their pain. Now, this person's a relatively new Christian, so she said, I don't really know who it was. It might have been an angel. I know who it was. Because he is the one, Jesus, who has come to restore us. He does not want you to carry around that pain any longer. One of the most important things that people can get into their, sometimes I like to say this, thick heads, is that Jesus is nice and he likes you. He's actually nice and he actually likes you. So let him in to restore all that was robbed from you by terrible religious people. So you're here on your own terms, always, until, of course, you're not. Because, actually, as soon as you open yourself to Jesus, you are inevitably part of his church, which means forever and since you're now here on his terms. So, give to the church because it is part of who you are. It's a cognitive dissonance to hold back some of yourself from yourself. Otherwise, it's like having one foot in one boat, one rowing boat, one foot in the other rowing boat, and they are going in different directions. It really hurts down there, doesn't it? Because you're split. Much better to just put both feet in one boat, either boat, actually, either boat. Often people find it quite freeing to leave the church. This is not what I should be saying. (laughs) I'm serious, though. Because better than having your legs split in two. If you don't actually believe. Please don't leave the church. (laughs) Obviously better. Put both feet in the boat. Now, what will happen is you'll have to let the Holy Spirit's breath, his wind his current take you. So you'll be completely out of control. Directed by him. But you're not actually in control anyway. As much as you might pretend to be. So give to the church because you are part of it. Secondly, give to the church because it's the best investment the world has ever seen. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is part of it. The church is the body of Jesus. It belongs to no one or anything else, despite what we may have seen. Has there ever been anyone like Jesus of Nazareth? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. But let me just remind you a little bit what he's like. I know that that's why we're here, and you know all of this. But let me just tell you again what Jesus of Nazareth is like. He stood up to all the religious control of society and stuck his middle finger up at them and said, no, stop it, I'm setting my people free. If you have received terrible teaching about money in the church, Jesus is here to stand in the face of it and say, no, I'm coming to set you free. The prosperity gospel is 
total and utter bullshit. Reject it with all your heart because Jesus is rejecting it and he is setting you free. The idea that if in order to be a great Christian you've got to give money is also not true. Jesus loves you whatever you do with your money, infinitely and without measure. Jesus is here to set people free, to be free with everything, including their money. That's what he comes to do. He befriends the weak and the vulnerable. He heals those who refuse to be touched by anyone else. There are parts of us that we don't want anyone to see. Jesus sees it and wants to heal it. He raised the dead. He washed the disciples' feet. He was self-confident but not self-related. Has there ever been anyone like Jesus of Nazareth? He was driven but not detached. He was gentle but not weak. He was free but not feckless. Has there ever been anyone like him? He was powerful but not oppressive. He was kind but not codependent. He was a leader but not a dictator. He was a servant but not a submissive. Has there ever been anyone like Jesus of Nazareth? He is the reason we're all here. He is what everyone is looking for and the church is his. And he it is who is the hope for the whole universe. So giving to the church, what you're actually doing is giving to Jesus. Let's be honest. Politics, you can give to that. It may do some good. But is it really going to change the world for all eternity? Only Jesus Christ can do that. Social action, environmental issues, schools, because we're in L.A., pet rescues. You can give to all of those things. They do lots of good. You must give to those things. But the only thing that you can give to that will have infinite, eternal value is Jesus Christ and his church. In his infinite wisdom, he has chosen us, I know, us, all of us, to be his body for the rest of time. Why then does the church so often look very unlike Jesus of Nazareth? Well, leaving aside those churches which Hannah mentioned in her prayer earlier that have traded him for some sort of uh, political agenda, whether it's left or right, and about whom the answer is pretty obvious. They don't look like Jesus because they've completely forgotten Jesus. Even those churches, and I include us in, that, in this category, who are trying to honor and worship and follow Jesus, we can run the risk of falling into too narrow a vision of what he is actually like. And what it means is that we just get a sliver of Jesus, part of who he is, which will be kind of satisfactory for some people, but not at all for a lot of other people. And satisfactory is not what Jesus wants for any of us. Verse 3. Yes, says Paul, we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. God's plan for the whole universe is oneness. Oneness with him, oneness with each other. But this does not mean homogeneity. There are no Jews or Gentiles, male or female, in the kingdom of God, not because those distinctions cease to exist, but because they cease to matter. A person of color does not begin, sorry, does not stop being a person of color by entering into Jesus' church. It's why I don't really see color is a sub-Christian sentiment. Rather, it's just that our difference no longer determines our status or our relationships or our value or our calling when we are one with Jesus. We are one, so therefore we have to fight for diversity to keep it. Verse 24, God has put the whole body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. 
i.e. those paths that have historically or presently been downtrodden. God is particularly fixated on lifting those things up. It's why we always have to put the vulnerable in our communities first, because that's what God does. So that, verse 25, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. So we need all of us to thrive so that the whole body might look like Jesus' whole body. And none of us can do it all because none of us is Jesus. It's why, verse 28, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Some of what um, I'm going to say is... um, a repetition of what I said on uh, the weekend away, but I think it would be good for all of us to hear uh, this uh, as a church. Paul, throughout the New Testament, lists various gifts and callings that we all receive, and here are some of them. Now, some of these gifts are more situational. For instance, the gift of healing. It's given for a moment in time when someone is sick to be healed. Some gifts are more vocational, the gift of teaching, for instance. But probably all of the gifts are a little bit of both, situational and vocational. For instance, God can gift us with a word of prophecy, even if we are not vocationally gifted as a prophet. So, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he sets out the five vocational gifts for the building up of the church. Evangelist, pastor, prophet, teacher, and apostle, three of which are mentioned here. It is my conviction that every single one of us is called into one or more of these gifts. They are not personalities. This is not the Enneagram. This is the actual Bible. (laughs) But having said that, in my experience, personality does play quite a a large role in the sort of thing that you might do, that you might be called into. And what they are is calling, the call of God on your life. But as I go through these, just bear in mind the personality that you have uh, and you can see with which you most closely identify. Now, there's a degree of fluidity to this. I think it's possible for people to sometimes oscillate between one gifting and another. But in general, people tend to be who they are and who they have always been and always will be. New Christians find this very easy to identify because they are unencumbered by anything that the church may have told them about the sort of person that you might be. They just are who they are. They become a Christian and they carry on doing that, but now for Jesus. So don't worry what your mother thinks you are. Don't worry about what anyone else thinks you are. Worry about what Jesus says you are and what you know yourself to be. Are you ready? Good. This would be so exciting. Evangelists tend to be as, if not more, comfortable with people who are outside the church than those who are inside. They can easily navigate spaces outside Christian circles. They particularly have a love for those who don't believe. They enjoy nothing more than talking to people about Jesus. And they can have a canny, uncanny knack of getting through to people who don't believe. As I said before, I really like going to weddings. Um, Because at weddings, I tend to um, do the officiating thing, and people go, oh, wow, he's a pastor. He doesn't sound like a pastor. He sounds a bit weird. Uh, And they quite like it. And then I spend the rest of the wedding talking to people about Jesus who don't believe. I was at a wedding two weeks ago. It was a beautiful Beverly Hills Country Club. If you're invited to a wedding that's at Beverly Hills Country Club, go. (laughs) And I'm there, and everyone's having a great time, and I just can't stop talking. I got in trouble with Hannah. She said, I want to dance with you. And I said, I've got to tell people about Jesus. I know. I'm a nightmare. Literally, I'm on the dance floor trying to tell people about Jesus. Non-Christians can often find them quite compelling. They're not judgmental. They have a high tolerance for the brokenness of people. They fully embrace grace, and they know it very well. They tend to be people who find being part of a church actually the most difficult, especially if the church seems to be unconcerned with outsiders. This is just, this is kind of um, my main thing. 
Um, what I've loved is people who've come to me and said, this is the first church that I can bring friends to. That, to me, you could not have said a better thing. I love it, but that's just me. It might not be you. Apostles, they are the entrepreneurs of the church. An apostle literally means a sent-out person. Apostles go. They can't stay still. They find it very difficult to stay still. They tend to have vision and ideas, and they are excited by the new thing. Nothing could be more exciting to an apostle than planting a new church. That would be great. Let's do it all the time. We'll work out the details later. Nothing could be more boring to an apostle than a church without any clear sense of vision. Where are we actually going? We keep turning up. What are we doing? Is this you? The life outside the current status quo of the church is the most compelling for them. Pastors. Pastors care for the people. They are warm and generous and welcoming. They have big hearts. Pastors are primarily concerned with the needs of the people inside the church. They can build community and friendship and love. They can take on the hurts of the people. They can take on the pain that people have experienced. They tend to feel things very deeply. They will get anxious if a church grows because of their care that people will be lost in the cracks. They like small, warm meetings where everyone knows everyone. Last week, I may have accidentally said, because I was going off script, that there are some people who've said they're a bit anxious about the church growing uh, because they love it when they can know everyone. And I said something like, shame on you. Um, I'm sorry for that. I genuinely am. We'll come on to how the different gifts can um, navigate each other in a moment. Teachers. Teachers teach. They love theology. They love the Bible. They have the gift of making complicated things simple. They know that the truth really does set people free. And that's why they want it preached. And they also know that bad teaching can have catastrophic effects. They are thoughtful. They tend to be intellectually stimulated and intellectually stimulating. They can find it difficult to move beyond the cerebral, but they can be overly dismissive of less intellectual elements of the faith. Prophets, finally. Prophets are the truth-tellers of the church. <laughs> Do you want to come and tell us what a prophet's like? <laughs> they tend to see in sharp detail, don't they, Jonathan? where the church is going wrong and where it's going right, don't they, Jonathan? They hear the voice of God clearly, and often they care deeply for justice and truth. They fight for it. They have a low tolerance for sin and will tend to err on the side of truth when it comes to speaking the truth in love. What's the love bit, they say. They tend to be direct and spiky. Such is their rigidity to God's word. They often feel misunderstood or disrespected in the church. For prophets, the problem is not really hearing God's voice. It's knowing how to speak it and when to speak it. So, do you identify with one more than the other? What shape are you? It is vital for us to understand our calling, both for your own sense of belonging and mattering here and your own inbuilt need to, be mat to matter and to be used. Being a Christian is not just about being with God. It's about doing something. All of you are gifted to do something. If you don't do something, if you've been part of a church which doesn't get you to do anything, you will wither and die because you are a human being and a human doing. That's who you are. We need you to be and to use your gifting. It really doesn't have to be rocket science. What draws you? What excites you? There's no hierarchy, verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You, little old you, are indispensable. Jesus is upset if you're not there, if you have been disregarded, because you are indispensable. Everything is important. There is no hierarchy. Do not compare yourself to anyone else. What a waste of time. 
Honestly, it is just a complete waste of time, whether you compare your looks, your talent, your abilities, your bank balance, just stop it, stop it. So easy for me to say. The problem with many churches is that the vision tends to be collapsed into those parts of ministry that the leader is most comfortable with. So evangelistic or apostolic leaders tend to create churches which are primarily focused on expanding the church at any cost. People, processes, doesn't really matter. We'll just run roughshod over those for the sake of more evangelism, more impact, more scope, more, 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 more. Pastor-led churches tend to create churches which are warm and small clubs. They don't really have much of a vision or a mission or a sense of purpose beyond just looking after all the people that are there. But inevitably, those people get old and die. And then they haven't got anyone to look after anymore. I'm just being honest. Teacher or prophet-led churches either create preaching halls where everyone comes for the sermon. Oh, is it, is it the main guy on? I can't wait for him or her, usually him. That's a problem. But they can become so intellectual, so cerebral, that everything else falls by the wayside. Or prophet-led churches create these sort of prophetic huddles which are so pure as to be unappealing to any outsider. It's often the prophet-led churches that end up becoming cults. <laughs> are you amening that as well? <laughs> We're not, I've told you once, we're not gonna become a cult, Jonathan. So, if you've ever been part of a church that is one in which you feel very comfortable, that's probably because it's led by someone a bit like you. Or more likely, if you've ever been in a church where you feel completely unseen or misunderstood, that's definitely not your gifting, the gift of the leader. Our vision at Bread is to be all of it. Every single piece. Where's Ben gone? Where's Ben? Has he gone? Well, he, he was here, and then he went, and then he came back. Ben, are you in the lobby? He's definitely in the lobby. Did he actually go? Okay. Um, ben, uh, during uh, our prayer meeting on Tuesday, staff had a uh, picture. He didn't know what I was speaking about. We had a picture of um, all these paints, these colors being thrown on a canvas, I think. Um, and kind of bleeding together to create this beautiful thing, but without actually losing their individual color, but kind of mixing. I found that very moving, and I think that was God speaking, is why I'm really speaking about this, because that's the vision, that we all bleed together to be this beautiful thing that looks very like Jesus, but we don't lose our individuality. We want to point to mature pastors in the church, mature evangelists, prophets, apostles, and teachers, for the more immature of us to look at and go, I can become like that. I can become more of that. Everyone gets to play, as we often say here, which means we need space given to all of these different drives. As you will have heard in my wife's prayer earlier, she is a prophet. She can't help herself. She gets quite angry. Notice that? Yeah, imagine living with her. Uh, but angry about all the right things. We need that. We need the evangelists. We need the apostles. We need the pastors. We need the teachers. The problem, though, is that we underestimate, and you'll already be doing this, you are underestimating how different and sometimes conflicting these gifts can be. Hence, Paul's desire, deep desire for unity. Because for every evangelist, delighting in the fact that there are so many people who don't believe on the periphery of the church, so many people coming to explore with their questionable beliefs and moralities, there will be a prophet saying we should not be tolerating compromise in our ranks. 
for every pastor resisting a new initiative and vision for the church because the people are exhausted and won't someone look after the people. There will be an apostle desperate to see something shiny and new and growing, increasingly bored if that doesn't happen. And for every teacher wanting to do a deep dive into some heavy intellectual teaching, there will be a pastor wanting not to alienate those who aren't so intellectually inclined. And so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. You get the picture. So how on earth do we hold all these tensions together? Given our brokenness and given also our insistent, insistence that, of course, our way is the right way, if we would just do it like this, which, of course, everyone else is all doing all at the same time, given all the other relational factors in play, how on earth is there any hope for this diversity in amongst our unity? There isn't without the Spirit of God. He is the one, the one Spirit, the one God who unites the whole church, and we need him. It's why we insist on being open to the Spirit over and over again so that he can change our hearts, so that he can, um, what's the word, shave off the rough edges so that we can actually play nicely together. It's a matter of the heart. Open yourself to the Spirit and see how much you change. So, back to giving. Give to the church because it's who you are. Give to the church because it's Jesus' body and he's fantastic. And give because the more you give, or the more you're able to give, the more the church can actually grow up into the maturity that it needs to become. It can be this diverse place where all the gifts are represented. All of them are resourced. And it, one, will mean that you feel more able to thrive here because you can see more of the things that really excite you happening in the church. And it can have more of an impact in the world outside. A short word to end on the evangelists and the pastors. Evangelists first. Uh, we need to grow. Just putting it out there. If this is you, you will know because you just bring people. You can't stop bringing people. You probably talk about church to people who don't want to hear about it. You can't stop yourself bringing people to the church. Can I implore you to carry on doing that and bring more and more people? Can you bring them to two things? in particularly, one in particularly, in particular, one, our Christmas service, 11th of December. Bring everyone you know. It will be really fun. There's gonna be a choir, there's gonna be some questionably tasteful decorations, there's gonna be um, uh, food and drink, we're gonna to go to a pub afterwards, bar afterwards. Um, it's Christmas, who doesn't wanna to come to a Christmas service? Can you bring them all? I'm going to um, talk about Christmas in a joyful, happy way. Secondly, bring them to Alpha. Alpha will be starting again on January. Um, we really need to make this somewhere where people who don't believe have a place where they can explore faith on their own terms. That's what it's designed to do. It's also very helpful for people who are new to the church to kind of process their own beliefs and we will continue to run it like that. But ultimately, it's for people who don't come to church. I am totally uninterested in sheep stealing couldn't care less about people from other churches being brought over to this church because this is now the church, for whatever reason. It's not the church, don't worry. Uh, but um, do you know what I mean by that? No. Anyway, uh, move on. I'm not interested in sheep stealing. Now, if you, don't, uh, if you no, no longer feel safe or happy in your church, please join us. We'd love you. Everyone, come. But the reality is, in this city, there are not enough Christians to go around anyway. So let's stop just kind of mixing them around. What we need is all the people who don't believe. So evangelists, you know who they are, you like them. You often think they are much better than your Christian friends, right? Good, they are. Bring them here, <laughs> bring them. And what we're quite good at, what we're quite sophisticated at is being able to communicate to those who don't believe, those who are pissed off with the church those who think Christianity is intellectually fallible, those who've had bad experiences of church. It's one of my gifts, it's my only gift, really. But we're quite good at doing that. 
So please, will you bring them? They'll be safe with me. I'll just talk about Helen soon. No. It's a joke. And families. We need more families. Um, I know it's tough for families. I've got kids. It's very difficult. Um, but uh, if we can bring more families in, that would be lovely. If you know families, if you babysit for families, invite them to church. If you know anyone who has children, invite them to church. We just need more children. We're in the process of um, uh, appointing a full-time kids worker. Um, it's going to be great. Pastor of the kids, director of the kids. Um, we're almost there. We'll be there soon, hopefully. Um, but that will be great. So more families. Invite families from soccer, from dance, from the school, from wherever. Pastors. It might be no surprise to you that um, I am not naturally pastoral. <laughs> uh, I don't make any excuses for that. Uh, it's just not who I am. I am. You should have met me 10 years ago. Much worse. Horrible person. I'm getting better. I am getting better. I really actually enjoy spending time with people. Um, but I'm not pastorally gifted. Hannah is not pastorally gifted either. She's much better than me. Um, but I'm getting better at it. And I want to look after people. I found it very difficult to start with, but I really do want to look after people. But I know that there are people for whom this is actually what they are like. They love it. They can't get enough of it, of being with people, of spending time looking after, discipling people. If you are that, can I encourage you to throw yourself into looking after people? Just invite them to coffee. Guys, we're not very good at doing this. Just go on dates with other guys. Uh, it'll be fine. Just invite them for a date. Hey, we're going for a beer. They might look at you a bit weird, uh, but it's all right. We're just looking after each other. Um, lead a small group. We're going to need, uh, I think we had something like eight small groups last time. We're going to need more than that this coming January. Lead a small group. This is such an isolated, horribly isolating city. What people want is a sense of being seen and being able to see other people, really. So if you are pastorally gifted, please free yourself into using your gifts. You know, there's a great quote from a guy called John Wimber who said, people will join a church for a million one different reasons. They will only stay for one relationship. Let us be somewhere. I, I'm just going to say this again. We're not going to stand for clicks. I have no time for that. Completely unchristian. So there aren't favorites. If you feel like a click is happening, destroy it. <laughs> uh, it's just the world. It's sin. What we're after is a nice big family. Someone's texting me, probably telling me to shut up. It's my mother. <laughs> Hi, Mum. Uh, finally, church planting. We want to plant churches. Um, there's no better way than growing the kingdom of God. It's planting churches. Um, we also want to have a night service at some point. Um, for this, we need... Um, money and people. Uh, this isn't to grow. Like, if we have a small church, it's fine. I don't care. I just want to do what Jesus wants. So if it's a small church, that's fine. What I do want is a globally massive church, a universal church for everyone because that's what Jesus wants. So I don't really mind if it's this number or any other number. I just want as many people to be part of the church as possible. Church planting is the best way of doing that. I think we'll probably plant on the west side. Um, I think, I can see how that might happen. I can see, uh, don't get too excited, it's way off. Uh, <laughs> but that's what I think we can do. Um, what we need would be to bring church planters onto our staff so that they can get normalized into our cult for a bit. And then <laughs> they can go out and plant. And we need more staff and we need more resources. So this is what we want to do. This is the vision for the church. It's actually the vision for every church.
to be honest, every church should be just saying what I'm saying, not because I'm saying it, it's because that's what Jesus thinks. University, university, unity and diversity. So, um, I want to ask to end, and I know I've gone on, but would you consider uh, giving to our end of year, um, uh, whatever it's called, pledge? Here's some numbers. This is our budget. Uh, that's for the year, it's slightly up from June because we have increased our staffing costs and our ministry costs because we want to do more and there's more of you. Uh, so uh, of that total, we are looking for this much at the end of uh, this year, 200,000. So we launched it last week. Uh, we're 10,000 in, which by my math is 5%, only 95% to go. Um, I know some people, uh, it's easier to give regularly, and in general, it's really helpful if you can give regularly to us so that we can kind of keep track of it. But for other people, their cash flow is a bit lumpy and give everything at the end of the year, it doesn't matter. Um, do what you want. But if you would like to give, this is what we're looking for, 200,000. Here is our budget so that you know in very simple terms. Uh, staffing is the large proportion that's about in keeping with most churches at about 50%. Uh, and then ministry and general admin and renting buildings and Raoul's healthcare. <laughs> Very expensive healthcare for Raoul. <laughs> um, so, there is no obligation. Jesus doesn't put any obligations on anyone. Imagine that. Instead, he says, I love you. That's his motivating speech. I love you. And I've given everything for you. Now do what you want. That's what he says. So um, let's have a moment where we can just pray, have a think about what God might be saying. I should have said this last week, no gift is ever too small, no gift is ever too big. It's all about our heart. We know, don't we, when we're being generous, and we know when we're not. Err on the side of generosity. It will do you good. If you feel like you've got a problem with money, one of the best ways to get rid of that problem is give it away. You'll find that it has much less power over you, and you really enjoy it. Giving's fun. Don't give unfunly, though. Let's pray.